thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, my show is all about the near-death experiences. And with me sitting here, I have Joe Homie, and he has an extraordinary experience, and he's a miracle he's alive. I, his story is just unbelievable. And here he is. Joe, how are you today? some thunderstorms are ready to go blowing in here but other than that we're doing pretty good here <laughs> and your your experience happened in 2004 yes 2004 wow that's extraordinary october, october 4th 2004 wow 2004 that is that is oh in october and it's a miracle that you're alive i saw the car yeah, and everything and i'm like Dang, you're, I, I can't even believe you're sitting here with me. And that was a long, long time ago. And uh, so I'm going to let you take the chair and, and tell us a little bit about how this all, you know, how, your survival. I mean, you're a miracle. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think the Harvard Medical people thought I was a miracle, too. They actually came and interviewed me several months afterward because they couldn't figure out why I was still alive and still walking around. In any case, uh, what happened, I, was, I left church one Sunday morning about around noon, and I was on my way home. I was about 15 minutes out from the church and about 10 minutes from my house, and I was on Interstate 75 north of Atlanta in a town called Marietta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I was getting off the interstate, and I was struck from behind uh, from a guy who was driving over 100 miles an hour. Uh-huh. At least that's what witness reports <laughs> had put him at. And uh, hit my car in the right rear, and it turned my car sort of sideways. And it was going so fast, my car started to flip over. And it, <laughs> witness reports said I flipped over about four or five different times. Um Mm-hmm. But when that scene was happening, I was very consciously aware of what was going on. And mm-hmm. I knew how fast I was going. And I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to be able to survive this. Um, I figured I was going to die. And I just uh, didn't understand why at that moment that that was going to happen. But at the same time, I more or less surrendered to spirit saying, okay, well, um, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. Mm-hmm. And right at that very split moment, a kind of a tunnel opened up, sort of orangish and brownish, uh, and it was sort of swirled. And I had been through different bad experiences in my life mm-hmm. before, and I knew that was a tunnel. And at the end of that tunnel was this bright, warm, perfect white light. Mm-hmm. And I had seen that white light in prior situations when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So I knew what it was. I was very comfortable in knowing that I was headed to the white, wonderful world of, of God's love. Mm-hmm. And then uh, everything was calm, everything was peaceful. And then suddenly uh, I was, I opened my eyes and I was awake uh, and I was in the back of the car. Mm-hmm. face down in my uh, uh, I thought wow I made it through this and you know I'm not even hurt and then I tried to move 
Mm-hmm. And when I tried to move, I suddenly realized that I couldn't move. I was paralyzed, actually paralyzed from my from my neck down, uh, 100%, couldn't move anything. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the, uh, uh, you know, I thought it was, I said to myself, well, uh, you know, I didn't die right away, but I guess I'm going to die here. At least I'm going to die without pain because I had no pain at all. I couldn't feel any pain whatsoever. I was completely paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And I could feel myself again slowly sinking out of my body. Um, and then uh, there was a tap on the car and I, I could hear a woman's voice saying, are you all right? And uh, and I said, you know, I'm paralyzed, call the ambulance. And uh, I realized I could talk. I figured, okay, well, at least I can talk. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'm not dead yet. Mm-hmm. And that led to a whole series of sirens and people yelling and screaming and all that kind of stuff. But I was trapped inside the car and it took paramedics about an hour to release me. Mm-hmm. They had to cut the roof off the car mm-hmm. and I was laying in the back of the car. And um, I could hear a helicopter coming in. I figured it was a light flight helicopter. And uh, the paramedics kept saying, stay with us now, stay with us. They couldn't get inside the car to get me out. They had to cut the roof off first. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they did, they put me under some some straps underneath me, and they some kind of a big crane lifted me out of the car. And when I looked down, I don't know if I was in my body or not, but when I looked down, I could see the car with the roof taken back, and I could see all the blood in the back seat of the car. Mm-hmm. And uh, they uh, put me up to level ground, and when they did, they turned me over, so I was facing up, and I could see the helicopter was real close by, and, and there were about five or six orange-clad paramedics. You know, the light flight crew was there, and I, uh, they rolled me over, and uh, the one guy directly above my head, where my face was at, he says, uh, you're going to be all right, you're going to be all right. And then a woman's voice spoke up, and the first thing she asked me, she says, have you made arrangements to donate your organs? And I said, yeah, it's on my driver's license. And then this guy whose face was right in front of me, I saw him turn and stare at that woman for for saying that. And then another woman's voice spoke up, do you have a living will? (laughs) And I I said to the guy above me, I said, I guess I'm in deep shit, huh? Um, but it was a very, um, they, what they did is they put a, um, an IV in me. And I didn't know what that, what it was at the time. Mm-hmm. But it was an IV that uh, it takes all the water and sodium out of your system. Mm-hmm. And the first 24 hours I was alive, I, I dropped 35 pounds. They do that with spinal cord injuries. Mm-hmm. And that was brought to the forefront by Christopher Reeves mm-hmm. uh, whenever he had his accident. And mm-hmm. I found out later that had I not had that IV, I would have been dead in a couple hours and paralyzed, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, permanently. But that was one of the things that did happen that basically saved me. And what was really interesting when I was laying in the hospital, um, Christopher Reeves died. I remember 
you know, laying in my hospital bed and watching the story about him dying. Mm-hmm. So it was like he lived long enough and did enough good things that he made a difference in my life. Mm-hmm. But in any case, um, they life flighted me uh, to a spinal trauma unit in downtown Atlanta. And they uh, went to the went into the ER, and the first question they asked me is if I was an organ donor. And then they put me in some room, and then they took me to... Uh, MRI and CAT scan, and uh, they asked me again if I was an organ donor, and, and they put me into a room, and they, um, and there was a whole bunch of doctors, nurses around. I could see up. I was lying on my back, and still no pain whatsoever, but 100% paralyzed from the neck down. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, uh, somebody else was brought into that room, and they were paying attention to her and. This one, I don't know if it was or who he was, but he, he looked at me and I, he says, Doc, look at this guy, he's vibrating. Look, he's, he's vibrating. And there's something that people refer to as a death rattle. And right before you die, your body goes into some kind of convulsions. And that's what my body was doing. And uh, the one doctor, who's apparently a neurosurgeon, says, okay, everybody come over here and look at this, look at this person. This is very rare. It only happens in severe spinal cord injuries. I want you to watch this so you can recognize it, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ordered me a, uh, uh, a syringe full of fentanyl, which is a very powerful, uh, it's, a, it's an opiate, it's about 100 times more powerful than morphine. Uh-huh. So they put that in, and, and, uh, and at that, the pain at that point, when I started vibrating, I could start feeling a lot of pain. And uh, what was happening was the, the IV that they had given me a couple hours earlier was beginning to work. And my nerve endings, okay, coming down through my spinal cord were starting to refire. Uh-huh. And when your nerve endings refire like that, what happens is you is sort of like twitching in, in your muscle groups first. Mm-hmm. And then when I could look down over my body and I could see my chest and my legs and everything, they were just literally flopping as like I was coming out of a, a movie, I think The Exorcist or something. So mm-hmm. it was really strange, uh, extremely painful, and the pain kept getting worse. So he ordered me, the same doctor ordered me to be moved into an adjoining room there. Mm-hmm. And they wheeled me into this room, and I could see all this medical equipment, and I could see observation windows up to the left side of me. And I didn't know it at the time, but what it was was uh, they were going to harvest my organs because there was no way that I could live. Uh-huh. My body had gone too far. And, uh, you know, that after about a half hour, 40 minutes, that fentanyl stuff started to wear off. Oh, no. And there was one nurse there. His name was Michael, mm-hmm. uh, African-American guy from Alabama. And he had a pretty heavy southern accent but he was very gentle very nice and he was assigned to take care of me so to speak mm-hmm. and um, any kind of movement like if, if a door closed or if there was any sound when it would hit I could literally hear the sound when it would hit my it would hit my feet okay I remember that one time because somebody had closed the door and that sound just made my entire body just vibrate with pain it was incredibly painful. It was so 
much intense pain. Mm-hmm. And it got so, so bad that what I chose to do was I knew I was going to die. And I wanted to, to do it on my own accord. And when I was younger, I had learned various different spiritual techniques to do things. And one of them was singing the word hue, like sort mm-hmm. of like that, mm-hmm. real soft. It's an ancient name for God is what it is. It's been mm-hmm. in all kinds of recorded histories way, way back. And uh, it's a kind of a, it's sort of like a prayer in a way, it's sort of like a song, a love mm-hmm. song to God, so to speak. And I did that and I wanted to get out of my body because it was so painful. So I would get out of my body. Didn't go real far. I would just get out far enough that I couldn't feel the pain and I could see the light, that perfect warm white light. Mm-hmm. And there appeared two spiritual beings. You can call them angels or you can call them, uh, you know, spiritual masters or whatever title you want to call them. It didn't make any difference what the title was. Mm-hmm. But they would meet me at the doorway to this warm, bright light. So when did so this happen when you're the extreme pain, and then you lift yourself out of that body? Right, yes. I lifted myself out of the body, out uh-huh. of my own body. Uh huh. Your own body. And my state of consciousness mm-hmm. was outside of my body. Wow. But my body was still operating. My heart apparently was still pumping, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And this process went on. What these two beings told me was that look if you if you want to leave you can go you can be in the light Mm -hmm. if you want to live you're going to have to experience extreme pain you can live if you want so if you want to go back into your body you can do so Mm -hmm. but you're going to be in extreme pain well that scene happened four times over the next 13 hours i was in that room for 13 hours and I could see, you know, people behind the observation windows. They were actually watching. Uh, it was the organ transplant team was there, mm-hmm. and uh, and they started filling adjoining rooms with people who were going to receive my organs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, the one, when he would, I could tell he was a doctor by the way he was dressed. He went down and he talked to to Michael, the nurse. And he was, you know, they couldn't figure out why I wasn't dying. Mm-hmm. And because I had every indication my body was was just going crazy with convulsions. And um, I just didn't die. And every time I would get extremely, extremely painful, I would leave my body. That happened four times. So I was literally, I literally died four times and came back. Now, they couldn't understand why I didn't stay dead. And that really confounded them. And that was part of the, I guess, the medical uh, notes that everybody took. And eventually, you know, months later, I was literally uh, investigated, not investigated, but they wanted to know what I did to, <laughs> in order not to die. Wow. And uh, they, uh, that went on throughout the entire night into the next morning. And uh, I guess they figured out that, you know, I wasn't going to die, so they wheeled me into an intensive care room. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was right about dawn, because I could see the first gray lights of dawn. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, uh, Joe, did 
you know, when you were saw the two people, your your visits, your visitors, and you had a choice, so you choose to come back. You told them, no, yes. I wanted to live. And yeah, uh, I didn't. I didn't say no. I just said, okay. I remember saying, okay. I will. I'll go through what I have to go through. Wow. And that was part of the message. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a lot more that happened here, and I'm about ready to get into that part. It's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got into that intensive care room, mm-hmm. I had been getting a syringe full of fentanyl in my IV every hour on the hour. Okay, and when my body would start to go into convulsions, they would give me that um, fentanyl. And they couldn't do it any more than an hour, or the fentanyl itself apparently would have killed me. So I was that when I could see the clock, and when it would get to the top of the hour, that's when I would get those shots into my IV. And I was in this intensive care room now. I wasn't in that same room as Michael. And I uh, I called out Michael's name, and this young nurse sort of walked into my room and said help you and then I said yeah I need I need the pain stuff that fentanyl and she said oh that's very strong stuff I can't give you something like that without strict doctor's orders I you know I'm not allowed to do that and she turned around she walked out the door mm. and my pain went into you know because it, it, it when it builds like that when the drugs start wearing off the pain just gets so intense and my body just went crazy mm-hmm. and I was really angry at her Okay, mm-hmm. for not paying attention to what she should have been paying attention to, reading her notes or whatever she had to do. Mm-hmm. And she had left me lying there by myself in that pain without giving me any drugs. And my body literally was catching, felt like I was on fire. And, uh, you know, the pain was incredible. And I was angry at her. And what I had done earlier during the night was I had, you know, softly sang you. And I would literally leave my body, and I was trying to do that again, but I couldn't do it because in order to sing a you song, in order to be close to God, you have to be in a loving, giving state. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't in a loving, giving state. I had a lot of anger toward this nurse, and mm-hmm. the anger it was was keeping me trapped in my body, and the pain just went so far off the chart mm-hmm. um, and I you know, I knew I was angry at her mentally I understood that and I knew that's what was holding me in my body and I couldn't leave my body and then I realized that I had to forgive her not only did I have to forgive her I had to be grateful for her participation in my journey and whatever that journey was Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand why I needed to be grateful to her, but I needed to be grateful to her. I did. It just came to me. I needed to be grateful to that young girl for doing what she did. And as soon as I was able to be grateful, then all of a sudden, I left my body. I went into the light, and it was about an hour and a half later when I popped back into my body. So I was gone, literally in the light, uh, for an hour and a half. And she—they gave me a shot of, she gave me a shot of fentanyl, and I popped back into my body. 
Mm-hmm. And um, but that was the greatest lesson of my entire that journey. Now um, there was a lot of you know, I almost died four more times over the next couple weeks in the hospital for a variety of different reasons. Mm-hmm. A lot of internal injuries and a whole bunch of different stuff, but. Mm-hmm. I ended up, you know, in rehab for four months after that. Uh, it took quite a while for the paralysis. The first thing that came back were my legs. I could start moving my feet and my legs. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I could lift them up. And then eventually I could start moving my arms. I had problem with my arms and my hands for months afterwards. But I eventually got everything back. Mm-hmm. But the most, probably the most important thing for people to realize is Near-death experiences, if you look at the the classic definition, you know, of what a near-death... Raymond Moody was the first guy who coined the term, the phrase, near-death experience. And actually, I wrote an article about what we're talking about here. Uh-huh. It was published in a magazine one time, <laughs> back in 2005. And in the same magazine was an article by Raymond Moody. He's the guy <laughs> who coined the, the term near-death experience. Uh, that was... I remember um, reading about him. Was, Moody. Yeah, he's. Uh, but uh, a near-death experience is is defined by when somebody goes through, uh, obviously a bit painful or, or either by injury or by sickness, when they technically sort of die, but they really don't die because they come back. Mm-hmm. And a lot, almost every one of those cases, people through a kind of a tunnel just like I did mm-hmm. and then they see this warm white light uh, mm-hmm. and it's different it's it's impossible to describe the love and the perfectness of that white light I mean our language and no language has the words to, to actually describe that so everybody uses the word love everybody uses the word white and pure and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm but that's what the near-death experience is supposedly like. Now, what's in my life, uh, there was different things that happened uh, earlier in my life. I mean, all the way back to when I was a very, very, very small child, an infant. Mm-hmm. My very first memory in life was when I think I was about three years old. I don't know exactly, but somewhere around three years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, uh, uh, I was sitting, I was sitting in, uh, uh-huh. the bedroom in my parents' home and, and I must've done something wrong or whatever. And my father came home and I could see the mean look on his face oh, no. and I knew he was going to beat me. Okay. Cause he, uh, and he was coming right at me and I knew I was going to get beat. So I left my body, and I went into this, I went on the other side of the world, and I was with all these slanted-eyed people, like Japanese or Chinese, I don't know what they were, but they were different. It was beautiful there. They had trees and and ponds and rivers, and I would go visit there. Mm-hmm. And I literally left. And then uh, whenever he was done beating me up, um, I popped back into my body, and I remember saying, said it under my breath. I didn't say it out loud. Mm-hmm. I could see him walking out of the room, and and I said, 
see, you can't hurt me. I can leave anytime I want. Um, mm -hmm. So I had learned, apparently through experience at a very, very young age, how to escape from um, from trauma and from beatings and all that kind of stuff. So I had a very troubled, uh, very painful uh, childhood. Uh, alcoholic mm -hmm. father who was, you know, very brutal. And I went through that, you know, in my entire early childhood. Mm -hmm. And I used to have dreams where I, what I would do is I would lie out in the in the lawn in the evenings, you know, when it got dark and I would look up at the stars and I, I would think, okay, what's on the other side of the stars? And I would take my imagination and I would go out past the stars and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what was there and I would do that and I would go inside and I would go to bed and then I would wake up in this perfect white world it was perfectly smooth perfectly white everything was perfect mm -hmm. and um, I would be there and it was sort of like a bed of white clay mm -hmm. the perfect smoothness and then the sun would be there it'd be real bright and it would start to bake the clay and just like real clay Mm -hmm. On a hot, sunny day, will start to crack. Okay, once it starts to melt, once it uh, dries up, and when these cracks would come, I knew that I would fall through and I would go back down. So I would fall through and I would go back down, and I landed in a jungle. And it was deep, dark green jungle, and then I knew this monster was coming. This monster would come and it would start to chase me. Mm -hmm. And I went through that dream thousands of times when I was younger. Okay, so I knew exactly what the warm, white, perfect light was. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I had my experience at the car accident, when I saw that warm, white light, I knew exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. I knew I would be able to go and I would stay there. I wouldn't have to come back again. So I know that sounds really bizarre, but that's what happened to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important to understand with a near-death experience that it's not the near-death part that's really important. What's really important is that who you are as a state of consciousness, you have the ability, okay, to understand yourself as soul, as a divine spark of God. And, and when you do that, then you become part of, of eternity, which is, is God, and in the purest kind of a way. And I've had other experiences in my life where one time I was in a kind of a dream, and I was going through this forest, and uh, it was real rocky, and I was on the side of a mountain, and I, I came out to a clearing. Mm-hmm. And I could see the warm white light flowing down. Okay, it was like this huge, huge river. It was like an ocean, but it was like a river. It was flowing down <clears throat> from God it, itself, and it was perfect. And I really wanted to know what it was. I wanted to look deep inside of it. Mm -hmm. So I did. I looked in. I looked, and I saw this. It looked like a perfect ice crystal. I mean, it was just perfect. But it was just one of billions and billions in this huge river. And that perfect ice crystal was, in some ways, 
similar to like a snowflake. Every snowflake is unique. If you put all the snowflakes on the side of a mountain, it, we see a big white mountain. We don't see the individual snowflakes. But each individual snowflake is like each individual soul. We are all unique. Uh -huh. Totally and 100% unique. That's so we cool. all are the essence of God in the purest sense. When so you understanding were, when you were, Joe, let's go back to your experience on the other side. Did you meet anybody that you recognized? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I literally, I had experiences before when I would go by people like that. Mm -hmm. I would just keep on going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but I've had a number of experiences, and I would do that. Now, I, I did, I have, uh, just recently, to give you an example, I guess would be a good way to address your question. Um, uh, I had a, a golden retriever, and he was getting old. Mm -hmm. uh, he just passed away here about oh, a month or so ago. Mm -hmm. But... A week or so after he was gone, um, I was in a, had a dream, and I was doing something, and he came up to me, okay, and he was happy, and he was hugging me, and pawing me, and licking me, and kissing me like he did when he was like a puppy and stuff, and he was right there beside my mother, and my mother had passed away like eight years ago, so I literally went to where they were. Okay, so, and I've, uh, another, another example, <laughs> you know, since I've already mentioned my father being uh -huh. as uh, mean as he was, um, being grateful to somebody who causes you lots of pain was an extremely important step in my say my spiritual unfoldment being able to understand what's going on because of that nurse that was in that hospital room with me and she didn't do what she was supposed to do I was very angry at the pain that she caused me mm -hmm. but when I was able to be grateful to her it released me so I could go back and be with with God mm -hmm. and I wanted to talk a little uh, bit about that because some are asking questions um <laughs> You know, when you left the body, when you were in the hospital, did you look back at your body? Did you recognize your body when you left? Uh, when I was in the when I was in the uh, the organ transplant room, I remember looking back at my body. Did um, you recognize it, or does it look strange to you, or my own body? Yeah. No, I I I knew who I was and what I was, I knew I was out of my body. Mm -hmm. I was somewhat aware of that because of all the different things that have, you know, have occurred in my life. Mm -hmm. Did somebody come so and there, get you? There was no fear. I never had any fear. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Fear is what kills people, ultimately. The fear of dying is the biggest cause of death, physical death. Um, uh, but but were, you the, uh, were you afraid, not afraid, um, losing track here, um, when you were out of the bar, did somebody come and get you, or you just knew where to go? You just, in, in my way of looking at it, I just go up. Okay. Okay. Um, and you went through the ceiling, or 
You know what I mean? No. No, at that time, what I was doing, I was just outside of my body far enough. Mm -hmm. I needed to stay connected to my body so that my body would still function, uh-huh. that my heart would still function. But did it feel I good? Yep. You, you were out of the pain and, and everything yeah, when yeah. you stepped away. Being away from the pain, yeah. And I was, st- I could still feel the pain, but it wasn't nearly as intense. Uh-huh. Um, oh, really? And I knew it, it had to be that way. But I guess the really important part is about a year or so after the accident, I I was living in Georgia at the time. My parents lived in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I came home to visit them. And my father was out mowing the lawn. And, you know, with that, with in mind what, what I had experienced with that nurse. Mm-hmm. And knowing how, you know, the resentment that I carried toward my father for, you know, all these 50 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um I walked up to him when he was mowing the lawn and shut the mower off and and I looked him in the eye and I said, I want to thank you for everything. He was 80 years old at this time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I want to thank you for everything. And he says, I mean everything. I didn't go into any detail, but I genuinely thank him for his participation in my life journey. Because if I wouldn't have known and wouldn't have experienced the light, okay, as I had done, I would have probably died at the scene of that accident. Mm-hmm. But because I had been in the light before, and because I knew that you come and you go, I didn't have any fear. I had absolutely no fear of dying throughout the entire process. Mm-hmm. So I was in part what I'm He didn't know what I was talking about because I didn't explain to him what I was talking about, but it was important for me but to you be know, able to express maybe, that to him now. Maybe you helped him in some ways too. Maybe you helped him when he gets to the other side. or you know Yeah, I mean? he died about six months after that, um, uh, after that incident in the yard when he was mowing. But the important, the really important thing was about two years after he passed away, I had a very, very vivid dream. Mm-hmm. And in the dream, okay, I was—I left my body, and I was—I was in some kind of uh, looked like sort of like a factory. And my father was there, and he was all dirty, okay, extremely dirty, and very tired. And mm-hmm. he had to work. He was working very, very hard, sweating. He was dirty, and he wanted to take a bath. Mm-hmm. And there was a great big bathtub there and he wanted to take a bath and he he couldn't because at the bottom of the bathtub was all these sharp uh, shards of glass okay mm-hmm. hundreds of pieces of shards of glass and he knew that if he got in that tub that he would cut himself and bleed to death so mm-hmm. he couldn't he wasn't able he, he didn't feel capable of t- he just wanted to clean himself. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, I says, Here, let me, yeah, let me help you. So I reached down. I 
down over the tub, and I cleaned out every piece of glass in that tub. Okay. Okay. And then filled it with water, and he was ready to get in. He looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, thank you. And he was now able to be clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a very powerful moment for me. It was a very... That dream helped me understand that me being grateful mm-hmm. for his actions, regardless of why he did them, okay, that is irrelevant. But his actions enabled me to be able to get through life and overcome a variety of different extremely challenging circumstances, and I've had a bunch of those in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell, let's get back to the near-death experience. The after, you know, when you you went from the hospital, you you were out of the body, and then, uh, um, you know, did anybody, did you meet anybody that you knew? No, you didn't know, or did they say who they were to you? Not at that time, no. Uh, I didn't. It was more important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, my focus was being in the light. Okay. Did it feel good? <laughs> was there any good feeling with it, or is it just there? It's a per- yeah. You can't, and I tell people you can't describe it. Okay, you can put whatever words you want on it. You can paint any picture you want. Mm-hmm. You can't even come close to the beauty and the perfectness of that white, smooth light. Um, mm-hmm. But that's who we are. Did it kind of invited you? Did you hear voices? Did anybody talk to you? Nope. Didn't hear any voices other than those two beings, <laughs> spiritual beings who were very welcoming, and they gave me a choice. And we all, as soul, have a choice to do everything we do or don't do in life. Okay. And, and so these two beings, were they men, women? They were, they were both men. Uh-huh. I didn't recognize either one. What were they wearing? Um, what were they wearing? Were they, they sort, uh, sort of like robes, but not really robes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was their demeanor and their presence that, you know. You remember. Yeah, the, yeah what I remember. And mm-hmm. they're being very, um, very understanding, very kind, because they knew the pain that I was in. Mm-hmm. Being very kind and very understanding, mm-hmm. knowing that I didn't, if I didn't want to experience that pain, that I had a choice of going forward. They gave me that choice. Um, very powerful. You know, it's a kind of a thing that you never, ever, ever forget. Mm-hmm. But that and happened four separate times that night. Wow. Same exact process. And um, the same words over and over. They just to make sure that yep, you, pretty much you, you yeah, got the it. Same message. Yeah, it's not really like words, words. They're more like uh, a, an inner communication, like um, there's a word for it, I think, what they talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't hear words, you just get the message internally. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very clear what their message was. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you have anything after, because you were in the hospital for quite a long time, so, did you have anything, you know, experiences after, like a couple of days later, a week, two, two weeks later? Um, did you well, I had a, a really uh, 
poignant moment. Um, I had been in a hospital for almost two weeks, and by then I was able to sit up, and they they put me in a wheelchair, and uh, they took me to what I called the mental therapist because the doctors kept the doctors. I didn't tell you this part, but the neurosurgeons the second day that I was there kept telling me that I had to. They, they had to do surgery to reconnect my skull to my vertebrae. It, my skull had been disconnected from my vertebrae. Whoa. Essentially, it's an internal decapitation. Whoa. And what they were telling me, that they wanted to bolt my skull back on. Mm-hmm. And they said, if we do, you'll always be paralyzed, you'll always be in pain, but at least you'll be able to live. And <laughs> I didn't want to hear that. You know, <laughs> being in that light is so much nicer than it is here. Okay. Uh-huh. If I was going to die, I was way happier there than I would be in a wheelchair, paralyzed, in pain, and being dependent upon everybody for the rest of my life. I didn't want to do that. Uh-huh. That was my choice. Mm-hmm. So I refused the surgery, and they kept trying to get me every day. They were different nurses and different doctors were trying to convince me to accept the surgery, a radical spinal uh, surgery. They were going to reconnect my skull. Oh and my gosh. the um, at one point they wheeled me to this I called a mental therapist, and and what she said to me she said, look we you know I don't want to put you through any more trauma than you've been through. We don't understand how you managed to do this. We don't understand why you're still alive, but you have to understand how much damage there is to your brain. You have had severe brain stem injury. You're never going to be able to think clearly. You're never going to be able to function right. Your brain stem was severely injured. Your medulla oblongata, and if people know anything about you know, physiology, they don't know what that, they'll know what that is, but it's, it's, that's your brain stem. Mm-hmm. It's been damaged by your accident. And, and she said, you seem to be in some kind of strange state of survival and denial. You're in denial of how badly you're injured. Uh-huh. But we, what, uh, what she said was, what I want to do is I want to give you a demonstration of how bad you know, your injuries are and or how bad your brain has been injured. Uh-huh. And I said, well, my brain's not injured. She says, oh, yes, it is. She says, you just, you can't, you can't remember what's been erased. And you've had so much that was erased from your brain that you'll never be normal again. I probably heard that phrase like you know, a thousand times those first few months. You're never going to be normal. But in any case, she says, I want to give you a test. Mm-hmm. And what she said was, in this test, she says, it's only three minutes long. At the end of the three minutes, you're going to understand just how badly your brain has been injured. I said, what are you talking about? You know, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. She says, it's only going to take three minutes. And I says, yeah, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. She said, she put a stopwatch down on the table. She says, I realize you're paralyzed. You can't write. Mm-hmm. She said, but what I want to do is I want you to give me every word that you can think of that starts with a letter D. And she says, you're a writer. At that time, I was a magazine editor. Mm-hmm. You're a writer, correct? And she said, and I said, yeah. She said, so you have a good command of the English language? And I said, well, not as much as I'd like, but. She said, okay, I want you to give me every word that you can think of that starts as a letter D. I'll write them down as you tell them to me. 
Mm -hmm. We'll count them out. After three minutes, you can give them to them an easy one. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. So she stepped the stopwatch. I said, did, dog. And I just sort of hesitated. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, okay. It starts the letter D. And my, my brain was like a, it's like a, a gerbil inside of a wheel. It was just going around and around and around and around. And the more I thought, the longer I thought, the hotter I would get and the more frustrated I got. And at the end of three minutes, the only two words that I had come up with was did and dog. And um, that emotionally devastated me, that realizing that my brain was so fried, so jumbled, that I couldn't even come up with a simple word. So did you, so let's give it, move on. Um, so did you have the surgery? Did you finally, nope, nope, nope never, never did. No, surgery? No, they, they put a, a big cervical, a very restrictive cervical collar on me. I, I wore it for four months. Okay. And it acted like a splint. Uh-huh. That's the only thing that the Harvard people were able to figure out. Well, then uh, how did, how like did everything come together? You know, uh, well, I did. I did a couple different things. Uh, you did I some did exercises. Some Reiki, Reiki, Reiki healing. I did something called directional healing, okay. and I used something called a Rife generator. A Rife generator is a machine. It's a sound and light machine, high frequency sound, high frequency light. So, it, so when you you did the, you recover and you went back, were the neurologists were they just amazed that you're Oh, the neurosurgeon, Neuro <laughs> I went back to him about eight months later because I needed some insurance paper signed. By then, I was able to walk and function and everything. And uh, I went back into his office, and, you know, he uh -huh. came in, and he says, well, you're not my patient. I said, well, I'm not right now. I said, but I was last fall. I said, I was in a bad accident. And he says, I don't remember. I don't, you know, I don't know. And then he started looking at my, uh, my MRIs. Uh -huh. And uh, he says, Oh, you're the guy that, da, 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 da. you know, he says, he says, who gave you surgery? I said, nobody. He says, don't you lie to me. Oh, he got really mad. He came over, he looked, he was looking for scars on my neck. He said, don't you, how did you, don't you get out of my office? Because <laughs> he had told everybody, including the people at Harvard, and I don't know how Harvard got involved in this, but he told everybody that. I was going to die if I didn't have that surgery. He told me I was going to. He says, he says, if you don't have the surgery, you will die. He says, you will absolutely die if I don't do this surgery on you. Wow. And I didn't have the surgery. And he was absolutely furious. He was furious in the hospital when, when I didn't allow him to do it. But he was way more furious when eight months later I was walking around, you know, basically normal. Um, but uh, it, it it was a lot of rehab, uh, some unusual, uh, highly secretive, uh, holistic types of medicine. I've always been familiar with holistic medicine. I worked for a holistic doctor back 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I knew some things that, you know, that are off the medical charts, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I did some things that aren't normal, and that's... That's why the Harvard people were so bonkers trying to figure out what I had done because they wanted to be able to replicate it. And I wouldn't tell them because it was illegal. <laughs> uh, 
rife generator at that time was a highly illegal. You can actually use a rife generator now. You can do a computer version of a rife generator. It's not so, the same thing, but yeah. So, but after that, when you for the past eight months, you only had one that near death near death experience inside the hospital. But have you had any near death experience since then, from being out of the hospital, being at home? near-death experiences yeah like not, not, a, not in a physical not in a physical okay, okay. But what's important to understand is somebody a human being doesn't necessarily have to be near death physically in order to be able to leave their state to their state of consciousness to leave their body and experience mm-hmm. inner spiritual worlds and I've known about that for you know 50 years I was taken out of my body 50 years ago and I wasn't near death at that time either so who you are your state of consciousness has the ability to move beyond the physical into the spiritual worlds and there's you know unlimited places that you can visit and unlimited things that you can learn um <coughs> excuse me okay. but uh so I've done those, and I still continue to do those on a limited basis. Mm-hmm. A near-death experience itself is a traumatic circumstance, or else it wouldn't be near death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you can learn how to shift your state of consciousness beyond the physical so that you can grasp things that you need to know so that you can function better here in the physical that's extremely important if I if there is one message that I can leave people with mm-hmm. it's that you don't necessarily have to be physically near death in order to visit those pure spiritual realms um, you don't necessarily have to be completely flopped out of your body but at the same time you can perceive and and gain insight in to who you really are as solace, the divine spark of the universe, the divine spark of God. Um, different religions have different religious leaders. You know, the Hindus have yeah. Krishna and okay. Muslims yeah, we, have Allah. Yeah. You know, they, but those, those people, those individuals, like Jesus, for instance, is a savior to the Christians. And so when people our Christian background, when they have a near-death experience, they're going to be seen and visited by someone that they perceive is Jesus, okay? And mm-hmm. it probably is Jesus, because Jesus is a real, you know, I, in one of my beyond-the-world experiences, I did see Jesus. I saw the, um, mm-hmm. the river that St. John talked about, and the river is basically all the souls Okay, of the Christian heritage, they're all there in the in the spiritual world. I saw that river, and I knew it was St. John's River when I went by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew exactly what it was, and that was all the in, at the center of that river of pure Christian souls is Jesus, because Jesus is their their leader, and that's who they look toward, uh, and that's who they're going to see. That's a prism that they're going to be looking through. 
So it's the same with it. Um, Joe, back again. Have you written any books? You know, uh, I've written a bunch of articles. I'm in the process of writing a book. Okay. The title of the book that I'm going to be writing, and I did it for this reason. The title of the book is "Quote." Have you made arrangements to donate your organs? Unquote. That's going to be the title of the book, because that you know that information or that question was posed to me so many times during my you know, weeks in the hospital. But mm -hmm. um, it's I'm going to use it as a way to attract people. You know, it's because mm -hmm. you know there's there's a big emphasis on organ donations. Um, what a lot of people don't realize, and I did a lot of research on this since this happened to me, the human body, the organs in a healthy person are worth somewhere between 400000 and $6 million. That's just the organs themselves and the transplants and so on and so forth. The, wow. the revenue coming from um, it, a big pharma gets from anti-rejection drugs is just off the charts how much you know that money's worth so there's there is a financial incentive to hospitals to uh trauma centers mm -hmm. to allow people okay that they figure are terminal okay especially if they're injured and they don't have some kind of a sickness okay mm -hmm. there's a tremendous financial uh, incentive for they, them to do what you, they did to me, which was let me lie there for, you know, over 14 hours well, uh, waiting like, for me to die so they could harvest more. Yeah, organs. that's what I was thinking. Maybe they were waiting for you to die instead of helping you. Yep. They were just waiting for you to die so they could get your organs. Oh, yep. my gosh. That's horrible. <laughs> it is. It's crazy. And it's, it's just not me. This happens if you realize. And what I found out later. So try to stay healthy. Uh, much as you can and be careful and you know try not yeah. to get into the hospital without anybody knowing you and oh my gosh what if you're a loner and you're in that situation they say oh yeah you don't have anybody you know let's let him die so we can get his organs oh my god that's horrible yeah. that's just horrible well it's 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 way worse in china in <laughs> china the chinese communist party has imprisoned know hundreds of thousands if not millions of falun gong practitioners falun gong is sort of like a combination of yoga and spiritual teachings and it's like an exercise thing but they imprisoned them and they literally uh you can go to china and get organ donations from anything but they aren't donations what they are is they literally kill people to get and they their, take organ. their organs uh, <clears throat> oh my that's God. a big big problem in china and a lot I, of people in the world are starting to find out about that, but the the organ donation process in the world uh, is has very good intentions, and on the other hand, there's so much financial incentive that there's a lot of evil. Um, a lot of evil. And, wow. Uh, well, so they were waiting evil. for you to die, and, and you sh you showed them, and then <laughs> the doctor wanted to operate. <laughs> And you showed him, and uh, but the but the Joe the ordeal that you went through in 2004 was unbelievable. I mean, your car rolled so many times, caught on fire. That's just unbelievable. And did you get any burns or anything? No, it, it didn't catch on fire. Oh, it didn't I, catch on I fire. Oh, good. I, 
Okay, yeah. good. So, it, but, it wasn't on fire that I know of. Uh, okay. But you, but you literally got out of there. But it was. Um, so they did. It they was got a crazy you. scene. And, wow. Uh, wow. This is this is frightening. Um, to go into the hospital knowing that they could steal your organs, that's scary. And then, um, and yeah, but I was reading your, you know, info that you sent to me, and then also too out there in the internet world about you and I just can't believe you survived and you healed yourself so how did your um, head and shoulders and everything get back together again what happened uh, well a couple different things I um, one of the rehab doctors came into my room after that incident which I called the mental therapist and he says you have to understand that your injury is different than other kinds of physical injuries. Your injury is directly connected into your brainstem. Yeah, your brainstem, that, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> that the injury to your spinal cord itself, and, and part of my vertebrae had been jammed into the spinal cord and cut off the, um, it's, cent it's called central core damage. That's mm -hmm. when the inner part of your spinal cord has been damaged. Mm -hmm. And that usually results in death because the central cord is what runs your heart and your lungs and your, all your vital organs. And mine had the damage. That's why they couldn't figure out why I didn't die. <clears throat> but in any case, what he told me was that the only way, he says, what right now they have you on very, very powerful drugs. And because mm -hmm. of the pain is so intense. You can continue to use those drugs if you wish, mm -hmm. and when you do so, it's going to feel comfortable. You're not. You're just going to want to lay there. You just want to be out of pain. And he says, "I understand that, but if you do that, then you'll always remain paralyzed, because what's happened is your muscle systems, your entire skeletal system, will start to atrophy. And when it does, after a period of time, that you'll never be able to get it back." And wow. He says, "The more pain you can endure." during your rehab process, the more pain that you can endure, okay, the muscles in, or the nerve endings in your spinal cord and the nerve endings that connect into your arms and hands and shoulders, he says, that's what will be painful. He says, but the more pain you can endure during your recovery, he says, the better you'll be able to recover. He says, you'll never be normal. <laughs> <laughs> they kept, everybody kept telling me that you'll never be normal but what you'll be able to do is get back some movement he says because for whatever reason you have a tremendously powerful will to survive we can't understand why you're doing what you're doing but but if you can experience pain the more pain that you can feel he says the better you're going to be so he told me what to do and he, and he didn't tell me what to do he told me how to do it he says, what you're going to have to do is find a way that you can move your fingers and your brain at the same time. <coughs> and I said to him, what do you mean move my fingers and my brain at the same time? He says, I don't know. He says, I don't know what to tell you. But he says, if you can do that, <coughs> those wow. nerve endings will start to re-knit. Wow. And when they re-knit, you'll be able to start feeling things again. That's wonderful. So, so what? when I went... When I went home, you start doing what I did things. was I, I would, you know, my fingers 
my arm started working. Hold on just a second. I got a cough. Okay. In any case. My fingers to move. The other part was I would get myself onto a website or someplace on the internet where I had a strong passion for. Mm -hmm. One, one of them was spirituality, and the other one was mm -hmm. Penn State football. I'm a big mm -hmm. Penn State football fan. So uh -huh. those two areas of my life caused I have a lot of emotion for those things. So I was able to hang out there for and do it for like three, four, five minutes at a time. Mm -hmm thinking using my brain to be able to express something well Joel, and then using my fingers at the same time okay i need to close it's been over an hour okay. so tell me the i mean i'm i'm mired that you're alive nobody survived with what you went through it was just a miracle and uh and especially this spinal cord damage and i'm so glad you didn't have surgery i learned something there Learn something about organs as well. Be very careful. Um, did you did you have family like um, wife or anybody like that? Nope. So nope. You were uh, that was another reason why they the organ donation thing was so much because I was a single single guy. Oh uh, my gosh. No no family no children no uh, no wife. And so they my sister and my cousin came to visit me. You know when I was in the hospital, but. Uh, I didn't have anybody that would be able to take care of me. I didn't want to be dependent on people. That's why I said, no, I'd rather die rather than be you know, paralyzed the rest of my life. Wow. And, uh, so, well, I'm glad that you survived. I'm glad I'm talking to you. I still, I'm, I still can't believe it because when I called you yesterday, you were out doing a job selling, and I'm like, and you were talking and everything. I mean, it's amazing. You're a miracle. And glad that you're still with us. Well, so, thank you very much. Joe, I'm glad you're still with us. And I do want to thank you for coming on my show. And you're a miracle. That's all I can say. You truly are a miracle. And uh, thank you again. And I do want to have you come back because I know you have so much to tell us. So, I'll have you back in a month or so, and you will be back on my show. How's that sound? Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you so much again for those listening to 